This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Thank you for joining us and welcome to Haymarket Books presentation of The Narcissist. This is the launch party virtually taking place for his brilliant new book, which I hope you will all pick up. Text messages or how I found myself time traveling. You see it there. <laughs> how are you doing, Nasi? I'm good. How are you? Good to see you, man. It's good to see you too. We now are at a period of time that is truly, truly exceptional. We have seen the biggest public health failing in certainly US history, possibly British history. I'm not sure about the situation in Canada, but we are definitely coming to you from two collapsed economies. Um, we saw an opening of what they call the Overton window, whereby the possibility of different political futures presented themselves. We saw universal basic income spoken about. We saw ideas which only a few months before it had been seen as politically impossible. However, when there was a good direction out of the crisis, there was also a bad direction out of the crisis. One good direction would have been the nationalizing of industries, decarbonizing our economies, a recognition of who it is that makes up the lungs, heart, and spine of society. And in consideration that countries like Vietnam, South Korea, Japan, and of course China had handled the COVID crisis better than the United States, countries which had all been on the receiving end of US imperialism within the last 50 to 60 years. There was also a bad direction out of the crisis. That bad direction was the bailing out of those companies rather than the nationalizing of them. It was the blaming of the external other in a way that could morph into war propaganda. It was increased surveillance and it was the deepening of the very logics that have made coping with this crisis so much harder. We know that after the Black Death of the 1300s, which is estimated by some to have killed half of Europe's population, you saw a massive increase in anti-Semitism and the scapegoating of people and even targeting of them as witches. You saw a lot of the methods that were used to interrogate uh, people suspected of being witches uh, being used upon, quote unquote, plague spreaders. Now, in this situation where it is projected that half of the world's workforce, that is 1.7 billion people, are projected by some to lose their jobs, where 65 million people across the United States in the months that have passed have been told you are fired. And only 25 million of those people are, are still now left without jobs. The rest of them, it seems, have found um, other employment. We've also seen money that is sent home from these metropoles, um, what they call remittances, have decreased um, by 28%, meaning that economies like Nepal or Tajikistan, 30% of their GDP is based on money that is sent home from others. Places like Nigeria, where something like $24 billion is sent home yearly, or Egypt, where $27 billion is sent home yearly, we've seen that decrease by 28%. So while the burden is distributed 
unevenly on a domestic level. Here in Britain, you are, of course, 4.2 times more likely to die from COVID if you are a black man. You are 1.8 times more likely to die from it if you are Pakistani or Bengali man. Um, a lot of that has been linked to overcrowding in housing with uh, the English Housing Survey finding that only 2% of white British households are overcrowded, whereas 30% of Bengali households and 16% of Pakistani households and 12% of black households experience overcrowding. We have seen the restructuring of society in a major way. And we have also seen, and this leads me on to my first question for you, Nasi, the reconfiguring of the relationship between people and work in a major way. And one of the things that Yuval uh, Noah Harari said, the writer of Sapiens, two of the most important skills that our children should learn growing up now will be number one, emotional intelligence, but secondly, mental stability. And the reason for stability is that they will have to adapt and change their method of work every few years. When we think about automation, when we think about this process in which people are unable to physically stand near each other, how are you thinking about the future of work for yourself? Well, first and foremost, you know, I think my 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 thinking at this time was about about taking this time to reanalyze what I do and what the people around me, both from a standpoint of how we treat the planet in our work, you know, uh, from the way we produce things to to the way we consume things, and then. Secondly, I think the thing I've been thinking about the most is how do I create a safety net for my children and a, and a literacy of media at their age, their, them being you know not both under 10. But I think those are the where I've been focusing most of my attention, both in my music, in my uh, teaching profession, you know, in, in all the fields that I'm in. Um, so I want to acknowledge that I, I feel like we're in a, in a not only a, a political, um, I hate the word quagmire, but in a political uh, crisis, we are very much in a spiritual crisis as well um, as as a as a world. I think we were we were rethinking our relationship to each other by distancing each other. We're starting to think about the, the worth of our relationships and how important they are actually in the continuation of life. Right. Mm. And, you and, I, and you and I both know our work is so reliant on what it makes people feel, mm. you know, outside of the physical products of CDs or shows or t-shirts or whatever, or videos that people watch of ours, you know, it's all about the feeling that we're leaving with people and what they're, that's what they're connecting to. You know, that's what we connected to through hip hop music. So I'm starting to think about my work and the impact of it and the legacy of the work of myself and the community that I'm in and having these conversations internally about how to move forward. I'm not really worried about not doing shows. Uh, I mean, I love doing shows and performing, but it's really not that important right now. You know, I, f I find like artists that are forcing public performances and putting their audiences in plastic bubbles in order to be around each other is kind of selfish. You know, it's like, why are you marketing uh, uh, your music publicly when it's dangerous for people? Let people experience it at home. There's different ways mm. of, of working that, right? So just thinking about like online presence and, and not being too immersed in the digital part of it, but definitely leaning towards making it both educational and entertainment at the same time, somehow, you know? Mm. And shift one my, of the, sorry, shifting my focus to behind the camera as opposed to mm. time, you know? Yeah. Because, you know, you are not only um, a writer, an artist, you are also an educator. And that has also had to radically change whereby the classes have had to go online. Here in this country, we have seen the government make quite clear that they view support for the arts as less of a priority than support for other sectors. And even when they are 
giving some support to the arts, some subsidy to the arts, they're very particular about where that is going. Now, I'm interested, this will no doubt lead to an exodus of people from the arts industry to other places. And they literally have launched a campaign that is encouraging people to retrain and get into other other places. So is there anything in Canada that exists to support independent artists such as yourself? Yeah, I mean, you know, Montreal specifically is a very artistic city, a very multimedia city. We have great artists and actors and, and musicians that come out of this city. And, and uh, the city is a bit of a crutch to that, right? Like I've had to leave Montreal in order to continue my career because the ceiling is very low. Um, but it's inspired all my work. So when this happened, you know, there was a great worry in Canada about the effect it's going to have on these industries specifically. I don't think they were thinking about the artists more than they were thinking about the because it's a big part of the Canadian economy. So, yeah, mm. there were grants that there were grants that were released specifically in Quebec for artists, for visual artists, for filmmakers, for people to create digital dissemination of works, public uh, displays. We're also coming in on a cold winter, so they've got to create something to get the people engaged with outdoors as opposed to indoor spaces, you know. Um, so there are grants, but I don't know if that's going to save you know, there are many venues being shut down. There are many places mm -hmm. that are slowly, and we're not going to feel the effects of what's happening today till six months, seven months from now. So I'm sure things are going to change. I just wonder what's going to happen to like uh, festival funding and, and um, performances for artists that were crucial for the survival of the artists here in Montreal. Um, but Canada definitely put a priority on the, on the arts because it's a big part of their their culture economy, you know. Right. Um, as a generation um, of Iraqis that grew up outside, we were not present in the country at the time of the sanctions. We were not present in the country at the time of the Gulf War. In fact, both of us um, were in countries whose armies were mobilized during the Gulf War against mm. the country that we had roots in. Mm. And then in 2003, we also were here. Now, yeah. throughout that period, for people like us, not only do we both live in countries that are part of the US government's Five Eyes network. So that is essentially government's that facilitate the US spying on their own citizens, which is different. In other places, they have to make more effort to get access to our information. But yeah. a lot of work by Glenn Greenwald, Edward Snowden, brilliant book, Permanent Record, it lays out the way the NSA functions through the Five Eyes network. The way imperialism functions is it creates industries within the metropole especially for people like us who are um, of the target of that imperial power. So we would have seen people in our generations, throughout the sanctions, there would be a few jobs available as people to kind of justify the sanctions. Um, but particularly in 2003 is when it ramped up, where people who may have been generations above us, but they were in positions where they could have some form of work justifying U.S. invasion. Uh, in the Daesh period, that, of course, brought in, I would say, more people from generations below us who were then able to, as to some extent is, well, not to some extent, is understandable, attest to the horrific crimes of this small, irregular organization in Daesh. Now we also have those that can come forward and mainly it's work in think tanks. So they are expressions of U.S. power and a sort of uh, what they call astroturfing, whereby you are able to depict something as grassroots when, in fact, it has arms in the U.S. government. And there's so many of these think tanks. They provide the kind of ideological groundwork for U.S foreign policy. And a lot of people like us went into such organizations. Mm. 
what do you think is the best way for people like us to work with and communicate with people that are still fleeing the literally hundreds and thousands of bombs that have been dropped on Iraq by the United States? And Britain has obviously been a junior partner in that uh, process. On, uh, I'll, I'll put that to you first. Yeah, I, th- I think like it's it's very difficult because in those situations, people rarely have uh, ability to communicate with family, let alone uh, people they don't know. Right. So I think you and I have placed an intention in our work to always share these stories. Number one, through our music and being able to turn it into a. a for lack of better words, like a digestible piece of content for people that wouldn't want to listen in the first place. So that's the first line of duty for us as artists. I've never, ever taken my platform for granted in that sense, because every other day you hear of a story that's completely crushing to your humanity and your faith in it. Right. Um, and, and these stories continue, you know, the other day was the 20th anniversary of, uh, of Mohammed al-Durra's uh, execution in Palestine. And to see that photo, again, you remember, like I was working back then on with the same things I'm working on now, but it's still as devastating to think back to an individual story. Um, so that's one. And then what I've been doing is really monitoring what is trending on social media and utilizing my platform to raise funds that go directly to children whether it's to build wells for them or to children in need of dire surgery to survive in our country. Um, those have been like direct actions that I do. And then to just like educate myself and read and, and connect with people and find out stories from them and share on whatever platforms I have. That's really all we can do. You know, the, the idea of thoughts and prayers to me is, is very um, uh, self-satisfying, you know, I'm going to go pray for you. And then خلاص, I've dealt with what I've dealt with. So I've always felt like we need to do direct action, but I, I, sometimes it's so overwhelming. I don't really know what to do. And I'm sure you've been in that position because you have stories that are in your neighborhood that are in your city in London. And then stories that you hear of people in Iraq or in Jordan or in Syria or in Yemen or in Palestine or, and it's just endless. So mm. I ask myself this every day, like, what are we doing? Who are we representing? Why are we doing? And how can we do better? You know? I, th- I think I completely agree um, with uh, the point that you made about focusing on the material relationship and that, uh, that practice of directing people towards donating to, to good organizations in Iraq. Another another thing that I think was useful for some from our generation was serving as translators rather yeah. than, say, translators for the U.S. military, as was a job ready and waiting for many Iraqis within the metropoles um, as translators for people on migration cases, people that were trying to reach uh, places that had been built up by uh, this process, like Britain, like the United States, like Canada, also building legal cases, whether it was small individual claims for reparations, for compensation from families that had died um, because of the British military in Basra, for example. You had a lot of cases um, in Britain with the MOD paying out over 20 million um, pounds. Now, of course, the British government has put in legislation to really block those uh, those attempts to really get justice for people that had lost family members. But I think as a diasporic community, it's important that we are able to develop a, a, a sort of integrity with the way that we are communicating with the place that we're from. Because so often you see people fall into that situation of working for those structures. And I think that... Um, it's yeah, it's it's fantastic. Like you said, the important thing is the material side of it, but then also the role we can sort of play yeah. as a bridge. And I think I think a very important thing is, and there's this is in no way comparable, but yeah, experiencing our parents' generations shift to North America, not for the same reasons, but watching what they went through in a in a mm. easier transition, I would say, but it was still difficult on them. 
watching whether it be the language barriers or the struggle that they face with work and, you know, coming here and having to start over with children. These are extreme forms of trauma for the families that are now shifting to the West from our countries. So to build a sense of community and, and it helps a lot, you know, I think. Yeah. And that individual, each one, reach one mentality, it, it eventually builds a web. So I think that's also extremely important is find out what's happening in your city. You know, if they need clothes, they need guidance, they need whatever they need, you know, just try to be there for people on an individual level. Community is king, you know, or queen. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, to the book. <clears throat> now, I've enjoyed uh, reading this. <laughs> it's not your first book. You released Diatribes of a Dying Tribe um, quite a few years ago. And was that self-published? Yeah, that was my that was my master's thesis that I had written for Concordia and I turned it into a self-published book. Yeah. Fantastic. So I suggest to people that are picking up text messages to also look for Diatribe of a Dying Tribe. Now, from text messages, it reminded me of Einstein's uh a great quote from Einstein when he said, it's obvious that our technology has exceeded our humanity. Now, while that rings true reading your book, I didn't get the feel that your book is a sort of Luddite piece. You are not saying that there is an inherent irredeemability in the mobile phone or in this kind of technology that increased that, as you know, you make the point as developed hand in glove with the war on terror, has increased surveillance, has increased this almost um, vicarious um, looking at another's pain, living vicariously through this instrument, but also this uh, spectatorship of other people's suffering that can be quite damaging. But you're not quite arguing that in and of itself, the phone is inherently... Uh, or represents an inherent evil. Um, if anything, you're kind of referencing the way in which it's utilized by humans. Is that right? Yeah, I think because I wrote a lot of this on my phone and knowing the reliance I have on, on the technology for both my career and my personal connection to my family, uh, I remember uh, Marshall McLuhan a lot when I remembered Marshall McLuhan a lot when putting this book together because of his his saying of the clothes being the extension of the skin, uh, you know, and the phone is really the extension of your hand uh, and and the Internet is an extension of your brain. So it's like a mm -hmm. external consciousness that we exist in and that we all share, which is extremely unhealthy if you think about it. Um, it has its gifts and its uh, but it also has its curses. At the end of the day, I think we develop a a form of a reliance that is extremely unhealthy to these things, right? Um, yeah. It, 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 it's a, it, these daily traumas that we experience together digitally, these videos that we watch of people being murdered and slammed on the floor or killed by a police officer or blown up into pieces. These are things that I don't think are supposed to be um, experienced on an individual, ma an individualized mass, right? Because yeah. at the end of the day, we're not sitting in a room watching it on a cinema screen, we're all individually experiencing it. So, which is different. Um, so yeah, I do think it's the way that tech companies are using these phones and, and tracking our behavior in order to create an economic system around our uh, spiritual and personal needs. That is the toxic part of the phone. But yeah. The connectivity that we've developed is incredible. And I think, you know, from here on out, every form of technology and every growth from the phone onwards um, is going to have that. And we're going to have to decide, is it worth it? Is it worth having a, a, a robot in my house that's going to learn my algorithm of how I live my day and prepare my coffee for me in the morning? Or do, am I going to take the time to prepare the coffee myself? You know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think we're at a precipice, just like everything else. I think, you know, the timing of the universe is not uh, uh, it's not haphazard. Everything is kind of in question right now. And our phones and technologies, we're at a breaking point. Like if we go any further from here, we have to have a responsibility and intention with our work beyond business. I think that's very important. Yeah, I mean, these 
these things that we carry about with us are primarily instruments of surveillance-based advertising. Um, But, you know, Lizzie O'Neill has this great book, um, Lizzie O'Shea, sorry, has this great book, Future Histories, where in which she tries to pave a way using historical precedents that Mm. we can find a form of digital self-determination that we don't currently have with the way that things are set up. Now, what you said actually leads me on to one question about something that you say in the book. So you have these really great, um, you kind of intersplice it with bits of graphic Mm. and with, and with, so the big homies, big homie said, I don't want to make history. It repeats itself. Mm. But there's one of these quotes that I thought was quite interesting. And the quote was your child or was it your child's child? Child, yeah. Will probably love a robot. Mm. But what's quite interesting about that is when we think about the extent to which AI is operating probably hundreds of experiments on us daily through our mobile phones Mm. and the physical proximity with which we keep our mobile phones and the extent to which we look at it probably more than any other human being in the world. It's almost as if we already do love robots. Yeah, I mean, we do. You know, we can. <clears throat> we do. Which ro- is pretty amazing. Robots are designed to, to, to love you in a way. It, it gives you what you want. It, it, you know, tools of propaganda are not teaching you anything new. They're repeating to you the same things that you already believe and strengthening them in your mind. It's a muscle. So at the end of the day, these phones are just serving as agendas to yourself. You are your own. Uh, Jeremy Scahill said this to me. I interviewed him recently and he said, you know, for the longest time, people used to point and say, they, 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 they're the problem. They are doing this to us. They, but really, we have become the they. We kind of have become our own propagandists, our own dictators, our own control mechanisms and systems. And these phones are just facilitating it for us. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree, but also I would think that our agency is slightly dulled when it comes to the mobile phone in that, in mm. that as power has always done mm. is it, it designs technologies that can bind people into social arrangements that they may not a completely understand or mm. b even agree with especially if they did understand and i think and i think the phone in the way it uses our information and the way it deduces information about us from us yeah is you know at no point if if i was to ask you narcy write 5000 sentences that begin with the word i am mm. i don't think you could but your phone's could. function is creating those 5,000 character points about who you are. So we're actually at a stage now where that information is available to the highest bidder and it knows knows us better than we know ourselves. Now that is a pretty scary kind of situation for us to be in. But just just to to ask you to deliver um, one of the poems in the book. Um, Now... The book has a, a beautiful cartoon in the middle of it, apocalyptic cartoon, I would say, which uh, perfectly captures your your rippling biceps. And <laughs> I was only inspired by you. I used you as the <laughs> so, and 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 it has it has poems throughout, and we also get um, to a beautiful short story at the end, a beautiful but tragic short story at the end. But if you were able to read to us now um, this poem, "The Heist That Is," sure. The heist that is. It's back to bombs over Baghdad. No outcasts here, all are welcome. Doors open and close policy. Politics as usual. No Jay-Z either. Ether me anas. Drone, sweet drone, walk me home. No war except class. No class when there is war. Students see the teacher die and become it. A scene to digest, hard to stomach. Tired of humanity, we have done this dance before. My feet tired, B. Fire the man who hired thee. Son of a bitch leaders, your mothers would be ashamed of you. Remember, she is buried in the earth you drop bombs on, so that's bombs on your moms. Martin Scorsese couldn't imagine 
Couldn't fill enough bodies into this chasm. Phantasm, the beast feeding in action. Thug life never pays off. You're nobody till somebody kills you. Kill somebody till you're nobody. Then somebody kills you. This is just gangster shit. Numb to the watch, but some bodies kill you. You see numbers, I see children. You see rubble where I saw buildings. The murderers murder each other. Makes you unsee the violence they uncover. History only repeats itself, then deletes itself. Beautiful. Thank you. Now, um, it, it reminded me in the bit where you are saying, you see rubble where I see buildings. Mm. It reminded me of a beautiful poem by Mahmoud Darwish called uh, The House is a Casualty. Um, and I suggest people check that out in his book, River Died of Thirst. But there was also a phrase here that I was really interested in. History only repeats itself, then deletes itself. What did you mean by that? I wrote this piece. This was one of the last pieces that I added to the book. We were actually already edited and, and gone through. But then the revolution about a year ago in Iraq started. Um, and I was watching watching live footage on, I think it was Amir Hazem's uh, IG feed. And watching what the people were going through and then watching the news and seeing how it was presented in Canada, in the UK, and then in the Arab world. And um, what we have experienced in 20 years of our careers, we've witnessed multiple deletions of history in the sense that people like Saddam were taken, which was a, a great uh, a step forward for Iraq, but they were also deleted. You know, Osama was taken and deleted. There's reasoning for these, uh, you know, people that they prop up as villains who are actually allies at one point to be deleted because they probably know a history that they don't want us to really retain or remember. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I think, I think a lot of it has to do with this thought that I've been having that I, um, that keeps coming back to me. And I've said this somewhere before, I don't remember where, but that we're at a point in history, in my opinion, where we're seeing the, de the, the decline of humanity because of technology. The reliance is being more, uh, is being laid more upon technology than on humanity. So I feel like maybe the Sumerians who were also, you know, murderous or the Egyptians who were also, I'm sure, not great rulers or whatever empire there was before, um, they may have been more advanced than us because they were more connected to their physical being and presence in the in, on the planet. So I think that's a big part of it, too, is like this news cycle that that removes what happened five minutes ago to replace it with something else. But also that when it comes down to my children being 30 or that generation being in their 30s, what are they going to remember of our time? I, I've had students at university at the age of 18 who don't know what Guantanamo is when I show them the picture. And that's crazy to me, right? Because that's such a defining moment in my life. They'll remember that Tupac died, even though he died way before they were even alive, but they won't remember injustices as great as Guantanamo, right? We're done in our name, who we are responsible for to a certain degree. So that's what I meant by that line is that history repeats itself. It does the same shit to people and then it deletes itself. So you don't remember and they do it to you all over again. You know? I, th I think also what you're speaking to really then in that line is the way in which the algorithm is not formed in an organic process. Mm -hmm. So you have companies like Google, who it's been uh, revealed recently, um, favor in search results, companies that they themselves are invested in. Right. You also saw YouTube say that they are a lot of it was off the back of the 2016 election. They came out and said in a bid to battle fake news and uh, disinformation, they would prioritize in search results, uh, trusted and reliable sources. Now, who were those trusted and reliable sources? They were Fox News, Rupert Murdoch, The Sun, Rupert Murdoch. They were some generally right-wing uh, outlets that would be part of that kind of invisibilizing of something like Guantanamo Bay. So really, in that sense, do you see the function of your art 
as almost a revenge of history then? Yeah, I think the way I view it is when we started, there was no template for us to follow besides what the African-American community did through hip hop. That was like the the and, you know, the Afro-Caribbean community in the UK as well, obviously, and all the all the communities that grew out of this culture of hip hop and dance hall that were documenting not only the injustices that they were experiencing, but the good times that they were having. So it was a documentation outside of this outside of the circle of the system's documentation of history. Mm. And as much as hip hop was co-opted by business, it always circle circles back to telling you the truth because artists mm. speak power and are so immediate in their in their conversation. So when we started, we looked into our community and we had Mahmoud Darwish and we had, you know, Madhafar and Nawab and poets that were from, not from the diaspora, but from back home that were speaking on their political realities at the time. But we had nobody besides Edward Said really guiding us as MCs or vocalists or, or, or documentarians or writers that allowed us to feel like we, ha we had a space to exist. And that was something I thought of very early in my career that I want to leave work for the next MC or the next writer or the next poet from our community to, to look back and read all of our work. That's why I did diatribes was to look back at these points of in history and feel like, okay, chapter one was written. I'm going to write chapter two. You know, you uh, know that that that's that's really interesting because you, when talking about the kind of public sphere as a contested space, and then the establishing of precedents and allowing people to come after it. For instance, your video fatwa. I don't think I've ever told you this, but it allowed me to speak musically about something that, on one hand, is quite. Um, a troubling process that millions and millions of people have gone through throughout the world. Um, but it allowed me to address it through music, to feel comfortable to address it through, you know, for instance, your track or Min um, Al-Arhabi by Dam. These kind of songs helped me formulate a kind of uh, lexicon with which to battle some of these well-funded mythologies about who we were, you know? So it's, it's, it's really interesting that, that, yeah, that, all, that you say that. We all reverberate into each other's lives. I think I learned this from MCs that I, you know, like Nas or, or, or Mos or, or, uh, mm. or Lauren or, you know, the people that were the most vulnerable in their music were the people that made me feel safe to say whatever I wanted to say. Yeah, yeah. And I would be doing a great disservice to the microphone that's in front of me if I don't use it that way, you know. And uh, yeah. and you have in, in you have also directly inspired me to keep going. And uh, you know, I, I I have a tug of war between the world and 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 its ills. So like for me, mm. I, always, I always looked at all of our peers as as you know pushing each other in this race that we're we're all running through. For you know? sure, for sure, man. And uh, the another poem that I would love you to deliver for us is "This Ain't a Movie, Dog." <laughs> uh, I think that's yeah. There it is. I just opened it on that page. Wow. So. Generation fed on overkill. The wonder kids who appreciate but underlive. You know the drill. Streets paved with the oil spills. Fire blaze on a soil shot. Gray spots sprayed by our mortal ills. Ew. Moral filling in your morning cereal. You'd rather scream, but there's nobody hearing you. This is life as a music video. Except the camera is your brain and the actor is your pain. You hear laughter when it rains, it pours. Love and fear, my brother, are very dear and live near each other. What's a gun but insecurity and impurity revering each other and a tear when we meet each other? Uh -oh. Same movie, dog. So if you want, if you want to see that, you you want to read that? You want to enjoy that uh, brilliant work from Nasi? You want to get that book right now? So there's a line in that that I want to ask you um, about. When you say um, love and fear, my brother, are very dear and live near each other. What's a gun but insecurity and impurity revering each other? What do you mean by that? Uh, the line about love and fear, I mean... 
at a at a young age we're taught to love and fear our parents um and then you're taught to love and fear god right and there's this attachment between this positive feeling and this negative feeling which is mm -hmm. which i think the outcome of that or the child of that is guilt right uh, uh, oh. which is a, a big part of being where we're from Mm. There's a sense of guilt that our parents carried that we inherited, and I think that came from their parents, and, and I, I'm sure you feel this as well. Um, whether it be like survivor's guilt or any form of guilt, you know, family guilt. So that's what I really meant by that line. Instead of wow. saying we are all guilty of these sins that exist on earth, I just wanted to say it in that way that I know in between these two feelings, I feel guilty about both in a way, you know? Wow. And then what is a gun, but a, but a way of projecting a power that you don't have or that you want to exercise on another person by murdering them or executing them or hurting them without your own physical means. You know, it's something that is external to you that is uh, that extrapolates power of a hundred men into or a hundred human beings into one bullet. So. That's really what it is. And it, this this poem was written a long time ago. Actually, it's on a song that I did with a rapper from the city called Lo Pesci. Uh, and somebody else was on it. It's a Ketranata produced song that we put out. And, and I had written it, you know, Generation Fed on Overkill. It was, again, about watching all this death on the Internet. And, and you know, we're wonder kids who appreciate, but we underlive. Like, we appreciate and grateful for what we have. But at the end of the day, we're dulled by all the shit that's around us. So it's about that dichotomy that's that's constantly pulling us, you know? I mean, this, this love and fear and the child of it being, and this then linking of that to this projection of violence um, made me think of a couple of things. Like Alfred Noble, for example, Mm. who's credited with inventing dynamite. Mm. Part of the reason that towards the end of his life, he came up with the idea of the Nobel Prize was because of the guilt that he felt about yeah. what dynamite was going to do to other people. <laughs> what it now, did. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the idea behind it being somebody that is in fear, creating this kind of stuff, that would then be used to harm other people, then creating guilt. And then it was the same with Oppenheimer with the Manhattan Project, the building of the nuclear bomb for the United States. He was another person, you know, who said, death has become me, felt deeply and intensely guilty about... Uh, and I always did. wonder with characters of this, of this like, or presidents or, or leaders of countries that, that in their power reign make decisions that... that as a human being, you know, are inherently wrong, you know, and they take for the perpetuation of whatever strength that country has, the love and fear that people have for your country or the love and fear of losing power, you know, and then later apologizing for it. It doesn't like we're at a point in history now where you can't undo these injustices that happen to the Native American community of this continent or the, the indigenous communities of, of Philistine or of Iraq or wherever you might think of. These injustices can't be made up. You can't taking a, a man to court will not bring back the people that were that, you know, that were killed. So. I always wonder, like, yeah, you're going to create a prize for peace out of your <laughs> your negative creation of humanity. It's not going to make things any better. You know, I, mm. I, I have well, I, th a, I also. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, bro. I, that's it. That was it. You sure? Yeah, I can go. I can go on for ages. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. No, I just I find it very, you know, like now watching Donald Trump be such a horrible leader for the United States and then. Bush's people being like, oh, shit, this is the good window to do PR around your painting and like mm. re reset your legacy before you die so that when you die, this becomes the latest story that we share, not your your, uh, you know, your mishappenings with Cheney and Rumsfeld. Right. So it's like uh, it, it blows my mind that people get away with the shit that they get away with, you know. Mm. Well, I mean, also, it's about thinking of in World War One, a study that they did found that when soldiers were confronted with other people to shoot at, naturally, they would try and shoot above them. So the majority of soldiers would try actually not to kill people. And so since then, 
the development of technology has been focusing focusing on distancing people from the direct ramifications of what it is that they do. So Absolutely. from that, you developed air air bombing, you developed uh, poisonous gas in World War One, um, the tanks to deal with the barbed wire, and of course, uh, long after that, we had uh, drones. You know, and I'll. Um, Now we have have dogs and robots, you know, companies like Boston Dynamics are creating these dogs like Spot that are supposed to be helper dogs. But at the end of the day, I've already seen videos on YouTube of drones and these dogs ramming in with huge machine guns on their back. What does that do to the next generation of war? You know, it's mind blowing. There's so much about our status quo and our economy, which is based on the dulling of empathy and the mechanisms and the institutions that function to dull that empathy. Because even within the supply chain, you know, the US military bases that exist in the world, yes, exist as projections of US foreign policy to threaten other countries like the 400 military bases around China, US military bases. They mainly function though as uh, providers and guarantors of the passage of goods. Because if you are trying to move your hardware around the world, you want the protection of a U.S. naval base or a U.S. military base near to make sure that people can't take that stuff. And so our supply chain has all types of things within it that we probably wouldn't agree with, whether it's labor relations or whether it's arrangements with U.S. security and stuff like that. Um, and so there has to be an extent to which you can dull people's empathy um, in order for that uh, status quo to perpetuate itself. Now, I, d- I don't want to take up too much. We could we could talk all day about stuff like that. But the uh, the question I, I also want to I have a question opposed to that, though, before you go to your next question. Sorry. Please go ahead. Go ahead. Do you, do you think that it is a dulling of empathy or is it a, a, you know, like they say, what a tangled web we weave, that we've reached a point in history where it's almost impossible for you as a citizen of a, a country in the quote unquote free world to separate yourself from any form of exploitation. Like there is no way of living exploitation free in the the metropoles that we live in, you know? Yeah. Well, well I mean. Just, just, just to add on to that, you know, the the global annual subsidies to fossil fuel companies are five trillion dollars per year. Now, that's all the governments in the world combined, and the U.S. government uh, subsidized the fossil fuel industry to the tune of seven hundred and fifty billion dollars per year. Mm-hmm. Most of the banks are invested in fossil fuel companies also. Now, it is that very addiction to these dirty fuels that is driving us to the point of climate breakdown. We're seeing a huge amount of species going extinct every single day, and yeah. we're reaching a point really of no return. So yes, it's it's that addiction to an unethical uh, way of arranging things and consuming, but that addiction is also fueling uh, a point where organized human life as we know it will not be possible in the same way at all, and huge amounts of people will die, undoubtedly. So from that nihilistic vision of the future to a story which, you know, and, and it will lead me on to a question about nihilism or nihilism, depending on how you uh, pronounce the word. But what is this story, um, Hashim, an unfinished life about? It's the short story at the end of the book. Um, what's that story about? Well, I started writing a book about a, a, a young boy who's a fictional character um, that is born into a country being Iraq uh, that is already stricken with war and that he falls victim to the unjust treatment of people during an occupation. He becomes imprisoned and uh, emboldened by his imprisonment, 
I left out some chapters of the story in the book. I didn't want to finish it. I wanted to end it in his childhood. But he witnesses some very, very traumatic and tragic moments in his life that shape him to believe that he is almost godlike. In his pain, he develops a narcissism and a, and a, and a, a thirst for power that is unparalleled in the people around him. So he goes from being an innocent, it's about innocence lost, right? Um, mm. He goes from being an innocent child to uh, a product of violence. Um, I wrote the story because, and I wrote it in such an extreme sense and a poetic way to allude to many prophecies that are foretold in, in monotheistic religions through their books, through the Quran, through the Bible, through the Torah, about a, an antichrist character or, or like what, what would be instances in the world that would create a person like this? who might destroy the world in their, you know, their positioning. And, and this is one minute example of what could create a, 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 a person so uh, dramatically driven to destroy the world around them. Right. Mm -hmm. And obviously there's no spiritual context in the, you know, he's not a, he's not a religious figure in the book, but it's just an example of, you know, a lot of the times when we were presented stories of people from the brown community and not just Muslims, but people from the brown community committing acts of violence, their story begins at the act of violence. There's never uh, and, and we started realizing this in our 20s when we watched uh, Israel and Palestine, Palestine, specifically Palestinians being uh, vilified when acts of violence were were committed by them. But. Israeli soldiers were never vilified, right? So at that young age, I started realizing how the presentation of the villain is constructed and how mm -hmm. there's always a backstory to it. And that doesn't justify the act, but there's always a story that needs to be told to contextualize where that comes from. And this was an example of a, a fictitious story of a young man who went through extremes in his life that... Um, Make him want to disown everything in, in human humanity as as one. You know, was he a metaphor for anything or anyone? Is he uh, representative of something of something else? I think he's representative of the human spirit in general. I I didn't have a a specific person, but I did want to point to the people that created created who destroyed children like this. So mm. definitely it's very clear who I point to in, in the book. If you read it, you know who I'm, who I say is complicit in the creation of destruction of lives. Yeah. Um, but Hashem himself to me represented just humanity and how fragile and innocent it can be and how it can be turned against itself. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, Subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.